Turn with me to James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Only not going to get very far. The title is Encounter Him. And that is quite an invitation that we have put before us in these verses. In the opening six verses, we talked about how God was offended by their friendship with the world. That actually created an enmity between them and the Lord. The Lord is not of the belief that you can live however you want to and cling to him. You don't find that in scripture. That's going to become clear as we move through here as well. The spirit of God yearns jealously for us, that we might walk with him, that we might come to him. And he draws us unto himself. And this passage tells us how to experience him and how to encounter him. You know, a lot of people will say, well, this is how you encounter God. This is how you come to God. No, this is how you come to God. Here it is right here. This is God saying, this is how you come to me. And we should hear what he has to say. And it should be the authoritative word in our life. Now, as we move through this in the first half of our study, at the opening part of our study, I'm going to address a controversial issue. And I, I just, I'm going to ask, I know it's going to step on toes. I know some of you are going to hold this, this uh, doctrine dear because of your experiences that you've had. And I'm going to ask you to just hear me out when we get to it and not shut down, but allow the Lord to speak through his word and allow your mind to go through the word of God and see um, where we're coming from on this. So let's begin talking about encountering God. It begins with us uh, submitting to him. So look at the first phrase of verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. By the way, as we look at these just uh, four short verses, there's a, this loaded with imperative verb. So an imperative is a command. And I don't think you could get many more imperatives locked into this short little passage than what you have here. So as you look at this, you have, uh, we're told to submit, we're told to resist. Both of those are imperative verbs. Um, and then it goes on and he talks about how we should draw near to God. Uh, we should cleanse. We should uh, purify we should lament, mourn, weep, uh, be turned is another imperative. And the last one is humble. So, I mean, the, the force of what's being communicated is, is quite clear. It is a, a heavy commandment portion of Scripture. And the first commandment is that we should submit to God, which means we all are submitting to something. You're either submitting to God or you're submitting to this world. You're either submitting to the Lord and his righteousness, or you're submitting to um, unrighteousness and therefore the God of this age, Satan. And people don't like that. People don't like it when it gets down to that black and white. It's either him or it's this. But that is what scripture says. Romans 6, 16 through 18 says, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Only two, only two choices. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine in which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. So you are either obeying the Lord and walking in righteousness or you're obeying the enemy and you're walking in unrighteousness. Who is your master? Answer the question by saying, who are you obeying? And if you're obeying the Lord, then that's your master. Jesus agreed with this line of thinking, Romans 6, 20, uh, Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Again, two choices. You're either serving God or you're serving some other agenda. So the exhortation is submit to God. Submit carries the idea of being submissive to another person that you're in a relationship with. You're, you're in subjection. You're in subordination to that other person. And here we're called to be in subjection to Jesus Christ. I can think of nobody better to be in subjection to than Jesus Christ. There is nobody better to be in subjection to than Jesus Christ. He loves you. He's created you. He came and was born in this earth. He lived here. He died here. He rose from the dead that you might have eternal life. You can count on him. You can trust in him. There are people that love you and around your life. I hope there are many people that are like that. But even those people, even if they were to be perfect, which they're not, they could not do for you what Jesus does because they would lack ability. They could enter into sickness and couldn't be there for you. They could pass away. There's all kinds of limitations that come upon our loved ones who want to do kind things. But the Lord is your creator master. He's your redeemer Lord. And we are to be in submission and subjection to him. Why wouldn't you want to follow him? Why wouldn't we want to yield to everything that he has to say? So James calls us to submit to God, submit to the Lord. Now, Satan has his own rules, right? He has his own desires. He has his own agendas that he's trying to lure us into to get us to submit to. And that rule could be fulfill self or elevate self or please self. But the prevailing desire of a believer's life should be to do what God wants me to do. I hope that is the prevailing desire. I pray that that is the thing that ends every debate and every controversy in your life. Is But what does the Lord say? But what does the Lord want? Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. That should be it. I delight to do the will of the Lord, and that's what I want to do. That's what dominates my life. So I submit to him because I want to delight him. I don't submit to the Lord because he's some angry, you know, omnipotent in, in heaven, ready to snuff me out if I do one wrong thing. I submit to him because I delight to do what he wants me to do in my life. I trust him, and therefore I trust what he has for my life is the absolute best. So the first thing in encountering God is that we need to submit to God and then resist the devil and he will flee from you. The idea of resist here to, uh, is to actively oppose the pressure. What is the pressure that the world, Satan, or your flesh is trying to put on you? That is what you are to be actively seeking to oppose. It's to stand against, whether in deed or in word. This is the idea of the word resist. We know that Satan is the father of lies, and everything he's trying to do is to uh, hurt God, harm God, and, and to show God that he made a mistake in creating you and redeeming you. And that's what his whole agenda is. He hates the Lord, and he hates whatever the Lord loves. We read in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah resisted the attack of the enemy five different times in the Valley of Ono. Sanballat was one of the enemies that he had to fight. 
And while he was rebuilding the walls, Sanballat said, come out here and meet me in the valley of Ono, and I want to sit and talk with you. But Nehemiah knew that he was up to no good, and so he said what? Oh, no, not going to do it. Five times. Five times he had to do that. Not once, not twice, five times. He had to say, I'm not going to go out there, and I'm not going to engage in this. And the same is true for us. We are in a spiritual battle, and we need to continue to resist the devil. There are battles that we face. And in that battle, you, I, we, the church, need to resist the influence, the, 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 the agenda of Satan. And there will come a point in time in that battle where relief will come. This is the promise here. If you resist, he will flee. Now, it'd be nice if we could say, and never return, but that is not the case. You know, it's been said we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We are being delivered from the power of sin, and one day we will be delivered from the presence of sin. Can't wait for that part. When we're in the presence of the Lord, and we're not going to have to contend with any of this anymore, but for now, we fight. For now, we resist. And if you are going through your Christian walk and you're not actively opposing the influence and the suggestion and the ways of Satan, you will find yourself making an error and not being where you want to be. Paul, in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, right before he's about to die, wrote this. I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. Yeah, he fought. He battled the enemy. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I mean, who doesn't want to stand before the Lord on that day and to receive this crown of life and giving him honor and glory? But you got to fight till the end. It's like, how much longer? As long as you're alive. For as long as you're alive, you're going to have to battle. You're going to have to stand. You're going to have to follow this commandment of resisting the devil to the very end. So you resist the lustful thoughts. You resist the angry thoughts. You resist those thoughts of being independent and sufficient apart from the Lord. You resist the anxiety and the worry. You stand and you cling to the Lord. This is the battle that we are in. Now, I prayed in the beginning and said in the beginning that we're going to talk about a controversial matter. We're reading here about how to stand against the attacks of the enemy. And when you think about that, there are other things in Scripture that tells us how to stand. Um, we are told in Ephesians not to give, a, a, give place or give a foothold to the enemy in our life. Right? You, you want to be wise. You don't want to walk carelessly and allow him to um, get into and have a place to attack your, your life. So we walk circumspectly. Um, we are told in Ephesians 6 that we should put on the whole armor of God, right? That we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against uh, principalities, the powers, and the rulers of darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're told to put on the armor that we can stand against that. So the armor, as you go through this, a great study to do on your own, think about the atoning work of Christ on the cross and every one of those pieces of armor that you put on is going to tie back to the atoning work of Christ. Think about what he did on the cross. And as you 
are outfitted in the finished work of Christ Jesus, you can stand. We are told by Peter that we have an adversary, that he's a, like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. And we should be sober about this warfare that we are in. We are told to repent of sin. We are told to confess our sin. And these are the instructions. Even in 1 John, we're told to um, we overcome the evil one by the word of God, right? So all of these things are how we stand against Satan and are victorious. But the one thing that I want to talk to you about that is not found in the New Testament, or Old Testament for that matter, is that believers should be delivered, believers, Christians, should be delivered by, from the power of Satan through some type of exorcism. I know for some of you, maybe even most of you, you would say, well, yeah, of course not. But I know for some of you, this is a popular teaching that you, you've heard. It's not new. It's been around for some time. And it, it teaches that uh, a believer can so give themselves over for such a long period of time to sinful behaviors that they actually become um, controlled. They wouldn't use the word possessed, um, but it's, I think we're just, it's the same idea. Um, it's, they become demonized. You become under the power and the influence. Let me read to you what Tom Austin, writing on the demonization of believers, how he describes this experience. He is not a proponent of it. He says, the general consensus among these spiritual warfare advocates is that Christians can be demonized to the point that they are indwelt and enslaved by a demon. The indwelling and enslavement begin when a believer chooses to sin over a period of time until demons are able to enter the believer's body and control at least part of the person's body and mind. They would leave out the spirit. Usually, this would be considered severe demonization. However, they do not teach that the believer has lost salvation. Eternity with Christ is secure, they would say. The demonized believer has no ability to restore his walk with the Lord, but must rely on a pra practitioner to come, and through whatever means and methods he finds that give the desired results, rebuke, cast out demons, and so on. So this is... The teaching that is out there. I, I, a movie recently came out about this. Um, it's, it's not new, but I do believe it is not biblical. And this is what I would say. And I realize I'm trying to speak boldly, but I'm also trying to make certain that I am not um, just being, uh, I don't want to try and, and just pick a fight for no reason, but, I, but I, I don't want to back down. I want to state this emphatically. Is where in the Bible does it say that a believer can be controlled or demonized or possessed, is the word I would put in there, in this manner? And the answer is nowhere. You don't find it anywhere in Scripture. And I, and I, and I know what is often said is, well, you know, you look in the Gospels, but those were unbelievers. These were unregenerate people who were controlled and, and empowered, or not empowered, but controlled and indwelt by Spirits, they were cast out, and then often they then put their faith and trust in the Lord and became Christians. We see the same thing in the book of Acts. So it isn't to say that Satan can't do this in an unbeliever's life, but it's to say that he can't do this in a believer's life. 
Pastor Chuck had to deal with this a lot in his ministry, and he wrote an article on this, and he says, there doesn't exist one piece of evidence in the scriptures that Jesus Christ, his apostles, or the early church once sought to cast demons of the flesh out of anyone in the body of Christ. The works of the flesh were recognized and were instructed in, and we are instructed on how to deal with them. Never are we taught that they are to be exercised. So what does the Bible say about this relationship between um, the believer and darkness? Well, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16 is pretty clear. It says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? All of these are none. The answer is none. What accord has Christ with Satan or Belial? None. What part is the believer with unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I dwell in them and I walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And if you follow the logic of this passage, if God dwells in you as his temple, then Satan cannot dwell in there or any of his evil spirits which I realize most of you would probably say, I, I agree, and all the rest of you are probably saying, well, that's good, I, I, don't, I don't want that to happen. I never even knew that that was a possibility. Well, it's not a possibility, but it is what people say. So we are the temple of God, and the Spirit of the living God dwells within us. Can we walk in the flesh? Oh, yes, we can. Can, can we give over and give Satan a foothold in our life to, to make an attack? We certainly can. But how we deal with that is different than what those who would kind of, and I'm just using the word demonization, that a Christian can have a demon and they need to be cast out. How you deal with it is very, very different. Tom Austin, I quoted him already, gives the following problems with this teaching. What, why is this a problem? Why is it a problematic teaching? And I'm just going to quickly go through these four points. You'll have to ponder them. This teaching, he quote, I'm quoting, this teaching degrades the character of God in that it belittles his sovereignty and omnipotence. This teaching demeans the effects of Christ's atonement in the believer's sanctification, which, by the way, go read Romans chapter 6. We quoted from it already, but go read chapter 6 in this, this context. By implication, it espouses that Jesus' atonement is sufficient for our justification to save us, but not for our sanctification. And as a result, all believers are subject to satanic control and enslavement. Don't believe it. This teaching that believers committing dwelt and enslaved by demons despises the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It teaches that demons which inhabit a person do not leave when, a, when he becomes a Christian. And that a Christian can be enslaved or controlled by demons by habitually choosing to sin. The result of this would be that a true Christian and dwelt by the Holy Spirit is also inhabited and dwelt, controlled, enslaved by Satan. Lastly, the erroneous spiritual warfare teaching disavows the responsibility of the believer to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to walk in obedience. 
That point, and we'll come back to it again in just a moment, is, well, if, a sa- if Satan has taken control of my life, can I really be responsible for my outburst of wrath? Can I really be you know, responsible for my greed and for my lust? Can I really be responsible for these emotions that are just raging in me? I, I need the demon cast out of me. No, you need to crucify your flesh. You need to mortify the deeds of the flesh. You need to repent. You need to yield to the Lord. And you need to resist the devil. That is our relationship. That's all that we're told to do is to resist the devil and he will flee. If there was ever a time in scripture where you would expect if this was a true teaching of of the early church that you would have had an expansion right here when he says resist the devil, it would have gone on to say, and by resist, I mean have the thing cast out of you. But you find that nowhere in scripture. And that is the standard, isn't it? We allow the doctrine of the Christian faith to be established by Scripture, not by what you think, not by what they experience, not even by what I experience. It is the Word of God. You know, you've heard me say these types of things many times. We believe the Word of God is inspired. It came from God. We believe because it has come from God, it is without error. It is inerrant. We also believe that the Word of God is authoritative. When God's word speaks, whatever it says is what we yield and we submit ourselves to. But the last thing that I want to say about the word of God is that we believe it is sufficient. The evangelical church doesn't have too much trouble with the first three. Oh, but that fourth one, the sufficiency of God's word. That's where we begin to push back a little bit. And I think this is on this point. What does the Bible say about this topic? And the answer is, it says that believers cannot be indwelt by the Lord and Satan. It's very clear. But unbelievers can be, and they would need to have the demon cast out of them. So what about their experiences? It's a good question. What about their experiences? What about the person who's gone to a service, and they've gone through one of these deliverances or one of these exorcisms, and they, you know, There was a manifestation. They began to talk in this other voice. The the demon names itself. Um, They throw up, and then they are delivered, and now they're having a better experience and walk with the Lord. What about that experience? Well, again, what about anybody's experience? Does experience establish doctrine? Do we allow what people think and feel and experience? No, it doesn't. So, well, but what about that person? Well, this is, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. First of all, I think the burden of proof is upon that movement to explain their experiences. I'm not in that movement. I don't have to explain their experiences because I don't do it. They're the ones that have to do it. And the only way you can explain adequately to me, and I would say hopefully to anybody, is to use the Bible. What does the Bible say? And the Bible is silent on the idea of of casting out demons from believers. It doesn't have anything to say on this front. So what about the person, though, that has had that and they've had some kind of, you know, forward progress in their walk with the Lord? This is what I would say. Either they weren't saved and they were really demon-possessed. The demon was delivered. They got saved. And now they have the spirit of the living God dwelling within them, and they are able to walk out the life that is described in Romans chapter 6 of not being slaves to sin. Well, I definitely was a believer. Well, then what I would say is, did you confess your sin? Did you repent of that sin? Did you call upon the Lord to give you strength? 
Did you um, decide to uh, make a break with sin? Did you begin to read your Bible and pray and get in fellowship more? Then that's the reason why you've had the victory. All of those are found in the Word of God. And although you had the experience, I would attach zero power to that experience and everything to all of those other Christian disciplines that are given in Scripture. Beyond that, I don't know. But I, I, yeah, I'm a little bit skeptical on those that have had that experience. And what I would say is, talk to me in six months and tell me if you had to deal with your flesh again. And I know what the answer is going to be. Yes, you did. You did, because I do. We all do. It's not like you get delivered and boom, that thing's gone and you never have to deal with it again. No, that's not the way it is. For all of my life, I battle against this flesh and I must crucify it and I must mortify the deeds of this flesh and deny it. And that is never going to change and that experience will not do that. When Pastor Chuck was asked about this, he quite forcefully wrote this about experiences. He says, what about experiences of Christians having demons cast out of them? What are the voices that name themselves? The writhing on the floor and the regurgitation? I don't know. I'm thankful that since I don't engage in these unscriptural practices, I don't have to explain them. Some of the names given by these supposed demons, which are more popular, are lust. So, you know, what's your name, demon? I'm the demon of lust, is what they often these are the, he's saying the popular ones. Lust, hatred, liar, gluttony, envy, fear, and jealousy. These things are classified in Galatians 5, 19 through 21 as the works of the flesh. Not demons. There's the works of the flesh. We are told to put off all these in Galatians, Colossians 3, 8. Or, to, or by the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the body. Romans 8, 13. Romans 6, 3 through 14. Not once are we commanded to have them cast out. It seems to me that this whole Christian and demon trip is a cop-out for the flesh. And that's what he writes. Now, that may be not what you're, you're coming from, but this is what his experience as he watched this movement sweep through the church. And there is a popularity to this. I'm not questioning the sincerity of these that are engaging in this, wanting to be holy, wanting to be set apart, wanting to be yielded to the Lord. I applaud that desire and would never want to quench that in any way. But I would also want everyone to be biblical and how we go to do that. And I believe this is not the way we've been instructed. I am fully convinced of this. If the Lord wanted us to know how to cast out demons out of believers and that it was even something, we would have some instruction in Scripture for it. I mean, think about the kind of instruction we get. We're told when to allow widows to be helped out. We are told what happens if a believer is married to a believer, an unbeliever and the unbeliever says, I don't want to be married to you. We are told if whether or not they're free to be remarried or not. How many people does that apply to? You're talking about a a minority of the church that will ever have that experience. I'm glad that it's there. The instruction is there. But if we can all have the potential to be controlled by a demon, then that affects all of us. And there's no teaching on it? You're right. There is no teaching on it. The only teaching that you find is teaching of what happens for the unbeliever. 
So there is an enemy. We are in a spiritual battle. We need to resist. We need to put on the armor. We need to fight until the day we are taken in the presence of the Lord. We need to repent. We need to confess. And we need to cling to Jesus. But we don't need to cast demons out of each other. That is not something that's found in Scripture. So now I would say to those who are like, man, I can't wait to talk to you afterwards. I'll talk to you. I don't want to fight about it. I don't want to fight about it. I'll be glad to talk to you about this and to hear what you have to say. But let me give you this one last kind of example of how to handle the Christian doctrine and faith being established. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out. There were tongues of fire that were above each of those that were gathered in the upper room, and they began to speak in other tongues. People that heard this came and said, what is going on? Are you guys drunk? Which I think is like the, the craziest answer to how you're speaking a foreign language ever. You ever seen somebody get drunk before? They don't become more articulate, okay? It's like, oh, I'm just break out into French every time I get drunk, you know? No, but this is, they're mocking them, right? They hear this. So what's going on? Are you guys drunk? And what does Peter say? You get up, Acts chapter two. He goes, we are not drunk as you suppose, but this experience is that which was what? Spoken by the prophet Joel. What is that? When you have an experience or I have an experience and we, it's inquired as to where does it come from, we ought to be able to say, this experience of mine is that which, and then you turn to the place in Scripture that explains what it is. That's a pretty narrow hoop to jump through, but it's a safe hoop. And, and, and here's the deal. If you don't do this, then my question is, if people's experiences become the foundation for allowing church practice where do you draw the line? When do you say, sorry, your experience doesn't count? That experience does, my experience does, but your experience doesn't count. It's not experience, it is a revealed word of God. So, yes, we resist the devil. And we can, there's other things we can do, and I mentioned them of how we fight. But one way in which the Bible is completely silent is not ca- is that we don't cast demons out. Keep on moving with me through James. We're going we're gonna to pick up the pace here. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So w- there's a promise of encountering God. How amazing. And this, this imperative here, draw near, it's an active aorist imperative which carries a sense of urgency. So the, the, the words draw near add urgency into the, to the tone of that. Add a sense of desperation, that decisive action is what is needed, and that's what's needed in each of us right now. Each of us need to draw near to God, and we need to urgently do it at this moment. This is what the Lord desires. Psalm 145.18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. If you call upon the Lord, you're part of the all. Don't count yourself out. If you will seek the Lord with all your heart, you will find him and you will experience him. What a promise that we have. Keep on moving in verse 8 and we find out how we turn to God. So there's, you draw near to God. Well, how do I draw near? Verse 8, cleanse your hands. So how do we turn to God? We got to get clean. We cleanse our hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
two more imperatives. We draw near to God by putting distance between us and sin. Can I be close to the Lord and live as a Christian and still live in the sin that Jesus died on the cross for? No. Will you sin? Yes. And he who says that he does not sin, John says, is what? You're a liar. You're going to sin. But to resolve then that I can live in sin and, be, and allow this thing to settle into my life and I can be close to God, the Bible says that is not true. Um, Isaiah 59, 1-3 says that it's our iniquity that is separated. It's our sin that has separated us from our God. If that's what separated us from our God, you can't come near to God without cleansing yourself. He says, cleanse your hands, the things you do. And he says, to purify your hearts, the things you think, the motives of your life. And you know, when that happens, when you draw near to God, you do get clean. That's what happens. Do you remember Zacchaeus, that wee little guy from Jericho? Remember him? He, he, he drew near to God just a little bit, right? He wanted to see the Lord, so he climbed up in the sycamore tree, right? He wanted to see, right? The, the, the Lord. And so he goes and he climbs up in this tree and the Lord stops and sees him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house today and have dinner. Oh, he's drawing near to him now. Pretty little effort, don't you think? But the Lord saw this sincere effort. And then when they got to the house, Jesus broke out into a long sermon about stealing and thievery, right? Nope. He doesn't say a word about it, but just being in the presence of Jesus, Zacchaeus comes under conviction and he says, Lord, I need to purify my heart. I'm not going to steal anymore. I'm going to cleanse my hands. I'm going to give back. I've taken from people. Now I'm going to give back. And so this is the deal. When you draw near to the Lord, you're going to get clean. If it's a sincere seeking of God, that is what's going to happen in your life. Now, as we, we talk about turning to God, first we've got to get clean, and then we need to be broken. Look at verse 9. And we get four more imperatives in here. Lament, mourn, weep, and be turned. Those are the four imperatives. They're synonyms of brokenness, and they represent a person's emotional state to sin. Which asks the question, is that my emotional state to sin? Do I feel this way? Is there a lamentation in my life? Is there a mourning and a grieving? Is there a weeping over the things that I've done? Has the, the laughter of sin turned into a, a mourning? Has the, this joy of rebellion turned to gloom in my life? That's what needs to happen. Not just a brokenness because I messed up my life. Not just a brokenness because I broke relationships or I lost all my money or I'm now enslaved into some kind of you know, ungodly, you know, lifestyle. No, I am broken over my sin against a holy God. As I was praying specifically this morning and saying, oh Lord, verse nine, how do I possibly communicate this in such a way that it would produce lamentation, mourning, weeping, and a turning in people's lives? And, and I was thinking, I was pondering and thinking of the words to say, what to write down. And I, and I just heard the Lord say, there's no words for that, Troy. There's no words for that. That's what happens when people experience me. When they come into my presence, when they are in my holy presence, I produce that in them. And actually, this is even 
True, and, and the idea of where we read that fourth imperative, be turned, it's a, a passive imperative, and it refers to a power outside themselves. Something is working upon us to turn us away from our sin. And I think the best example I can think of is Isaiah chapter 6. For five chapters, Isaiah has said, woe is this people. Read it. You can go scan the chapters. Woe is this people. But in Isaiah chapter 6, he does not say, woe is this people. What does he say? Woe is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What precedes that? I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I saw the seraphim flying about, singing, holy, holy, holy. It is an encounter with God Almighty that produces within us a woe is me. I need you, Lord. As a matter of fact, in the book of Job, when Job is being rebuked, and the Lord is saying, I make the path for the lightning bolt. I'm there when the, when the deer gives birth in the forest. I'm the one that tells the waters to come no further. Job also responds and says, Lord, it is you alone who humbles man's heart. Which means this, sister, you're not going to humble him. You're not going to break him. It means this, brother, it doesn't matter what you say, you're never going to bring a humility before God and her. That is a work of God. And that work is only done as we spend time with him. I would say the lamentation, the mourning, the weeping, and the being turned are a continual state of affairs in our life. Yes, it happens when you first get saved, but it should be happening throughout your walk with the Lord. There should be that sense of, of heavy grief and sorrow that I've opened my mouth and I've hurt or I've harmed somebody. That I've allowed my mind to go to a place it shouldn't go in anger or bitterness or greed or lust. And I am broken over that as I find myself in the presence of the Lord. There is no humility button to push. It is an experience with God. Think of Peter when he was in the presence of the Lord and they caught those fish. Hey, what does he say to the Lord? He goes, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Oh, the beauty of that sweet brokenness. It is a good thing to be broken by the Lord. Lastly, what happens as we go through this painful experience? Well, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The humble are honored. The humble are honored by the Lord. It's not a, a false honoring that comes from men or even from yourself. This is an honoring that comes from God. The word lift up here, it, it's, it's, a, it's a word that goes like our English words lift up. And we, you know, we can think of something like you know, picking something up. But that's not this word. Lift up is defined like this. To cause enhancement in honor, fame, position, power, or fortune to exalt figuratively. That's what God wants to do. And when we seek him, and we call upon him, and we humble ourselves before the Lord, we, that is, we lament, we mourn, we weep, he says, I will lift you up. Going to the place of brokenness before the Lord should not scare us. It's the place that we should have the most hope, because it's there that God will lift up. Let me read one quote from Albert Barnes. He says, He will exalt you from the condition of a brokenhearted penitent to that of a forgiven child. 
will wipe away your tears, remove the sadness of your heart, fill you with joy, and clothe you with the garments of salvation. What's holding us back? What's keeping us from breaking down before the Lord and repenting of the sin? Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God. And what does this last line say? For he will abundantly pardon. He's not stingy with his grace. Think of a vessel with the hose in it, and it's just the hose is left on, and it's overflowing. That is how God will respond to your lamenting and your brokenness and my humbling before him. God is not going to say, nice try. Don't do it again. I'll talk to you in about a week. I forgive you, but no. That's not the spirit of the Lord, is it? He abundantly pardons. I pray we will hear the voice of the Lord, and we will run to him today. And let's do that right now. Lord, we come and we are grateful that you still deal with sinners. That you're still welcoming people like us into your presence. We need you. We want you. Lord, where else are we going to go? Thank you that you are merciful. I want you just to respond to the Lord right now. The exhortation is to draw near. That is, do it now. The force of urgency to draw near to God. And you will find a merciful Lord that's going to meet you as you turn from your sin. The enemy says, God doesn't want you because you're a sinner. And the Lord says, hey, sinner, come here. I want to pardon you. This is the Lord. And I would ask you, if you don't repent today, what kind of message do you have to hear from the Lord to repent from the sin that you're involved with? You don't get any more blunt than this. And if you are to move on and to remain in your state, the Lord will have to break you. I mean, it is so much easier to humble ourselves and to lament on our own than for the Lord to break us down. In that book of Revelation, the Lord says, I gave you space to repent. He's giving you space to repent. You sit here today with the ability to turn from sin. Do it. Let's run to the Lord. Let's draw near to him. We're going to close with this song. We're up here in front to pray, but I want to encourage each of you, whether there's the sin of your hands or the sin of your heart, let's run and let's draw near to God. Let's be broken over our sin, but understanding he is going to lift us up. Let's stand together as we close in prayer.